Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,121 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week three on a 14-week series from the book of James titled, Wisdom is Faith in Action. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, kids, for being up here. And this lesson does tie directly in with our lesson this morning from James. James, wisdom is faith in action. Today we're going to look at God's prized possession. Because there's a little bit more of the story after what Susan had talked about getting hooked by that temptation and sin, there is a shining note to that. As we're continuing our series today on the Proverbs in the New Testament, the book of James, or the letter from James, last week we started to mine that rich treasure trove of nuggets of wisdom, practical wisdom that we can apply to our lives, that we can use each day. And today, we're going to discover why we should not be misled by sin, because we are God's prized possession. So join me on page 1881 of the Pew Bible, or if you have your own Bible or your phone. It's James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And like last week, I would encourage you to keep the passage open during the message, as you can follow along with me. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of firstfruits of all he created. Now, I want to read that last verse in the New Living Translation also, because I think it gives a little bit better intent of what God's view is for us. He chose to give us birth by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possessions. So hold on to that thought during the message today, that prized possession. Last week, James dealt with the kind of trials that tests a person's endurance, the ability to keep our faith under extreme pressure and not give in. And that was in verses 1 through 12 of James chapter 1. Next, this week, we explore the other meaning for that Greek word, trials, and that's a test of our moral endurance. And if you remember our Burlington insert for last week, I reprinted it on one side of this. Last week, we did the up arrow. Our trials test our faith, which gives us endurance, and ultimately brings maturity to us as believers. Today, we're going to go on the downward tra trajectory of this particular arrow. In these six short verses, 
James presents the truth about temptation in a very straightforward manner. Rather than skimming the surface about temptation, as some preachers and teachers tend to do, James probes deeply below the surface, below this gray line on our insert today, to reveal the inner workings of temptation, but less as a psychologist and more as a surgeon to precisely take out that which is affecting us. James begins with certain facts that describe temptation in verses 13 through 16, and then we'll move on to the focus that determines our victory in overcoming that temptation in verses 17 and 18. So let's look at verse 13 first. James wants his fellow believers to understand at least four things about temptation. First, temptation is always present. Nobody is exempt from temptation. And once again, James says, when and not if. Like trials that form us in our test of faith, we'll always have those trials. We'll always have temptation. Trials in the form of temptation are inevitable. There are no spiritual vaccines. There's no get out of temptation free cards. No alternate route to avoid the traps along the trail. Not a person here, certainly including myself, is immune or innocent from that temptation that will bombard us each day. The aging monk in the monastery is no safer from temptation than a kid growing up in an inner city. The lowly saint that wrestles his prayers and wrestles with temptation just as much as an executive as he drives down the road with his Porsche. Secondly, God provides tempt or prompts temptation in verse 13. Some would say, and James addresses that, God will never prompt temptation. The New Living Translation says, and remember when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God never te is tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. God doesn't whisper evil thoughts into our minds or create alluring images in our minds. God isn't even directly involved in temptation in the least. While God does use trials and troubles in our lives to bring about his work of maturing us in verses 1 through 12, God is never the author of temptation or evil. Never. It's an impossibility for God to be tempted or to tempt us. God's absolute goodness and holiness guarantees the truth of James' statement that to be holy means to be separated. Remember I mentioned a few messages ago, being set apart for God. It's the inability to be affected by evil and the inability to cause evil. For God, who is absolute standard of holiness, both are true. James says that God is never able to be tempted, nor does he tempt. He is holy. As we go on to verses 14 and 15, the third fact to understand about temptation is that temptation always follows a consistent pattern. James introduces this statement in verse 14 with but, indicating a contrast between whether God's tempting us, he says, but God is not the author of temptation, but James implies that temptation originates from our own desires. Temptation could be thoughts that we allow to spring up in our minds or external objects that we see and then lust and desire after. 
In this same verse, he clearly states that one who is tempted is dragged away by his own evil desires and enticed. The term enticed here is an interesting word. And it's actually a fishing term. I should have Matt come up and show me how best to... It looks like, you know, if you drive a rack, you Well, this is Iraqi. This is it. This is my son-in-law Nat's um, fishing pole. Because when I fished growing up, we had a bamboo pole and a string on it. We never caught a lot, but every once in a while we would. But that term enticed means to bait. It's a lure that's dropped into our lives. A thought or something external. The bait in itself is not sin. The problem is that deep within us, our hunger stirs for the desire to take that bait, which turns to lust. And we find ourselves drawn toward that lure, just like Susan's story this morning, through a persuasion of curiosity and a heavy dose of rationalization. We can rationalize anything we choose to in life and say, well, it's okay. But motivated by our own desires is, not some, to, is to have something that's not rightfully ours to have. Now, if I don't get this too tangled up, and I told Matt I wouldn't cast it because I'd be bound to hook probably Lucille or somebody if I tried. Now, I'm just going to drop this lure. Come on. There we go. And that's about how I would do it with fires fishing. And then I know enough where this thing pulls it back up. And if I was a good fisherman like Matt or Joe Hellinger, then I would be able to tease the fish, draw them to the lure, make it attractive for them to say, this. I think it's a juicy, juicy worm that they must have. And just like Susan's story says, it's not all that it seems to be, is it? That bait, that lure that we so desire is there tempting us or enticing us in our lives. And if we're not careful, we'll think, well, it's okay to eat that bait, just like the little fish in our story rationalized that it was okay to take that bait. Come on, cooperate with me. Hope I don't poke myself in the process. All right. Note the contrast, though. Whereas God is not evenly, rem remotely tempted with sin or to tempt us, not even indirectly, our lustful desire is the direct cause of our sin. We can't blame it on this alluring bait that looks so delicious. The temptation itself is not the necessary cause. This bait is not sin. It's when we combine our desire with that bait and we yield to temptation, the result is the disaster that James describes in verse 15. James begins um, chapter 1, verse 15 with the word then. The order of the steps of the process will become clear. The word conceived here that's used in this, this very verse is the same word that's used for any type of conception, human conception or animal conception. It takes two parts. You can't have conception without those two parts. It's the two necessary ingredients that are joined together that will form a child in a womb. In this context, James emphasizes 
that when these two unnecessary ingredients do join together, the object of our temptation, which is this bait, and then our internal lust, then temptation is conceived. In the cycle that's set to motion, look at your other side of your bulletin insert today, is the slippery slope of sin. First, the enticement appears, that bait that was so delicious. Then we're carried away saying, eh, it'd be okay to dabble in that. I won't let it go too far. Then lust gives way to sin, and sin ultimately brings forth death. I have an example from the Old Testament, King David. Clearly illustrates what James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 is talking about in a radical way. While his armies were out fighting, David stayed in Jerusalem, lounging and lingering in the palace, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If he had been where, with his army like he was supposed to be as a good king, then this downward plunge toward immorality could have been avoided. But instead of waging physical war in the battlefield, David fought a physical war or a spiritual war against temptation, and he lost that battle. It started out seemingly innocent enough. He meandered on his palace roof. The king's eyes wandered and caught sight of a woman bathing on an adjacent roof. And that accidental glance, if indeed it was accidental, was not itself the sin. But mixed with David's restless surge urges because he should have been in the battlefield, that quick glance became a willful stare. He noticed that she was very beautiful. The focus of his gaze is his, and his internal desires conceived a powerful temptation that few men, especially in David's position as king, would avoid. Could he have? Certainly. But like the victim dropping through a trap door, David's plunge in temptation to sin was followed by a rapid-fire progression. He made some very unwise choices. He inquired about her. He sent for her. And ultimately, he slept with her, knowing full well that this was Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David's sin just did not end with his adultery. Instead, immorality turned to desperate attempts to cover up, ultimately leading to two deaths. The death of Uriah the Hittite when he sent him out in front of the army and he was killed, and the death of his very own son, the product of this desire that he had. From lust to death, David's temptation serves as a textbook example of what James describes here in verses 14 and 15, as if he was following James's script. The most frightening thing about David's sin is it happened to a man after God's own heart, as he's described in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. If such a great man of God could fail suddenly and so severely, we shouldn't think for a moment that it can't happen, happen to us, whatever our desires are. That's the bad news about temptation, but the good news is that temptation can be resisted. A person can resist the desires. We can turn from the bait when we see it. We can retrace our steps. We can cancel the process. But the one who is tempted to coddle, like that little fish saying, I don't believe my uncle. Look, I know plenty of people that have gotten away with it, gotten a worm and didn't get caught. When we get carried away by this allurement, we move into the realm of temptation. When we allow temptation to linger, we will eventually sin. 
It's a natural progression. And when sin continues without repentance, it results in death, or at least a death-like experience in verse 15. Sin, that monstrous offspring, that conception that's born out between our temptation and the bait, that monstrous loss of depravity goes through conception, development, birth, growth, and finally death. And that's, Je- death's James, that's James's death cycle of sin. Now, if we could linger over this word death for just a little bit more longer, sometimes people can die physically because of their sin, whether they catch a disease or, say, the sin of alcoholism or drug abuse, and they die prematurely. But James, in verse 15, can't be referring to physical death. If that were the case, all of us would be dead within a few days because very few of us resist that temptation. We wouldn't be able to live through it. And James doesn't mean a spiritual death here or eternal death. The good works don't save us. Whether I sin or not doesn't change my standing before God. So it's not a spiritual death either. Paul says that we've been saved through, by grace through faith apart from our works in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So if James isn't talking about physical or spiritual death resulting from sin, what death is he referring to? To do so, we must become an Old Testament Jew. We must put on our Jewish glasses and look at this scripture from their perspective. And that's a mistake that we make many times in our modern Christianity is we don't see it through the viewpoint of the authors that wrote it. In Jewish thinking, death was often seen as a trajectory and not a destination. To be dead is often described as a poor quality of life rather than a cessation of being. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 says, Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death between prosperity and disaster. And Deuteronomy equates those two as the same. Disaster is the same as death. Prosperity is the same as life. We also see a choice between life existence and death's existence in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28. The way of the godly leads to life, but the path does not lead to death. And Proverbs 13, 14 tells us, The instructions of the wise is like a life-giving fountain. Those who accept it avoid the snares of death. Jewish Christians saw people either traveling on a road to eternity by walking with Christ by the Spirit or on the path to death by walking apart from Christ in our flesh. This death-like experience is the opposite of the rich and satisfying life that Jesus promised us in John chapter 10, verse 10. No longer, if you're walking that path of death, can the sinner walking in death live out the true life of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, as we find in Galatians chapter 5. This kind of death James has in mind. We have seen, seen temptation as being always present in verse 13. We've explored that consistent process of temptation follows a known path, verses 14 and 15. And finally, James notes regarding temptation that it is temptation that flourishes by inconsistent thinking. James abruptly breaks this description of temptation, sin, and consequences with a clear demand or command in verse 16. He says, 
Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be led astray. The lures of temptation will come in many forms, just like this tackle box here. It has all sorts of types of bait in it, all sorts of types of hooks in it. This is how temptation comes to us. It won't be the same for you as it will be for me. You may be tempted by something that I'm completely oblivious to. I'm oblivious to a lot of things. I might be tempted by something that you're completely oblivious to. But the allurement builds the case of deception through our thoughts and empty promises. We don't buy into it. Don't be deceived. If we go back to the verse of our theme for August, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't let your thoughts stray away from the truth to deception of falsehood. Because the process of temptation always starts in our mind. Verses 17 and 18. Let's see what the victory over this temptation is. After vividly describing the facts of temptation, James turns his readers to attend attention to the source of victory over temptation in the final two verses. That source of victory is God. God provides the mean of victory over the subtle allurements of temptation and sin because he, James writes, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like a shifting shadow. God dispels the darkness of deceptions. He lets us see the bait for what it is. He says, that bait is not good for you. You'll get hooked on it, and it will lead to at least a death-like experience, existence in this life. He is an unchanging one, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Unlike the allures of temptation, which are always changing, if this allure won't get me, and this is what fishermen do, if one, the fish aren't biting on one, they'll switch to another one to see if they can attract those fish to the bait. Note the contrast between blaming God for our own desires when God is the provider of every good and perfect gift. Where our desires give birth to sinful actions, verse 18, the New Living Translation describes it, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, everything he created, became his prized possession. Now, I had a real hard time coming up with a prop for a prize possession because just nothing would fit it of what a prize possession is. So I have sort of a, a backup of that. I collect eagle paraphernalia. And so this is one of the, the thing, paraphernalia that I have. And I love eagle paraphernalia. I have all sorts of them all around my office. And this is what I could consider maybe a prize possession. But this so pales compared to what God thinks of us. Living in America, as wonderful as it is, just pales in comparison to us being God's prized possession. Because nothing can compare with it. Out of all creation, the entire universe, we became his prized possession. How can we settle for fish bait when we're God's treasured possession? Last week, we saw in verses 1 through 12 that James challenges us that the trials of our faith 
are given to us for our own good to mature us. Only God's wisdom can bring about that intended result. But in verses 13 through 18, James explains the temptation to sin comes not from God, but our own sinful nature. But God's good gift and perfect gift brings victory through his word. James contrasts on our bulletin insert the two trajectories that we're on. We're either on the up arrow or the down arrow when trials come into our lives. One toward maturity, the other toward sin. One toward enduring trials, the other toward succumbing to temptation. One toward the upper path of life to abundant life, the other on our slippery slope of death, as we see on the other side of the bulletin. James is asking the questions for all of us to answer. What path are you on? And how can we apply these truths to our lives? It is our focus that determines our victory. You have probably read this idiom before, but I thought it was really applicable for today's lesson. When I'm talking about sowing here, I'm not talking about making dresses. I'm talking about planting seeds. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. And this goes both ways. A lot of times we'll think of that as negative, but it can be very positive too. We can be on the upward trajectory and not the downward one. Those words in this idiom emotionally reflect the warnings of James. The insignificant thoughts, those minor transgressions, those harmless habits, all of these can snowball into a lifestyle that obliterates, obliterates the testimony of the most respected saints. How many times have we heard a pastor or a church leader fall into sin? They're no less exempt from temptation than you and I are. It depends on which direction you're heading. So how, ask yourself, how can we avoid this slippery slope of sin and stand victorious against the allurements of temptation, against this bait? Don't take the bait. First victory comes through dwelling on the good. James notes that for every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Indeed, he gives us good things for a reason. You can't harbor evil thoughts in your mind and reap good results. Neither can you, by nature, do good and wholesome thoughts in your heart and then constantly produce evil. Addressing the value of allowing the peace of God to guard our hearts and mind, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So let's ask ourselves, do we do that? When we're overwhelmed by a particular problem, what do we think about? What do you read? Who do you listen to? What do you dwell on? Sin always begins in our thoughts. You cannot sin without first thinking about it. So take some time to evaluate the kinds of seed that you sow in your fertile garden of your mind are they seeds that grow into the thoughts that found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8? Or are you slowly poisoning your mind and setting yourself up for failure when the inevitable storms of temptation will blow through our lives? We will be tempted. That's a given. None of us are exempt. 
Secondly, the victory comes through living the truth. James says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Through God's word, this is what he chose to give us truth by. This is our standard bearer for our life. The same as a mother would give birth to a child, God gives birth to goodness in our lives, to nurture and protect us, giving us all we need to grow. And when the inevitable and appealing temptations do come, God's word can deliver us from that evil. Psalm chapter 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the way to avoid the temptation and sin. Are you treasuring God's word in your heart? Do you merely dabble in the scriptures now and then? Or do you immerse yourself? Do you purify the refreshing waters by taking a bath in his word? Do you search out scripture verses mechanically to satisfy an itch that you have? Some curiosity? Something to make you feel good? Or do you allow it to search you and cleanse your heart and mind? Reading it, memorizing it, and meditating on God's word. The greatest and most perfect gifts are from above, and those gifts come down through his word. They will help us to stand strong in the moment of temptation. So take this opportunity right now, along with myself, and ask the Holy Spirit to do some soul surgery so that we can pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm chapter 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That's what we do to avoid taking the bait. It's through God's word and meditating on it and asking him, point out that bait that I might not be able to see for myself because in this world it's so hard to distinguish sometimes between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We need God's wisdom through his word to tell us that. Whenever your particular, whatever your particular temptation may be, no matter how relentless they are, God is ready to provide that good and perfect gift that will strengthen your heart, his life-giving power and personal victory. And though I am far from perfect, and I'm tempted as much as anyone here, probably more so, I can tell you from personal experience Focusing on God works. Word does work. It what helps me to avoid otherwise getting hooked on the bait, taking that bait and falling into sin. And that's our lesson for today. Next week, we're going to move forward to more practical wisdom and learn about listening and doing. And I'd encourage you to read James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27 for next week, about listening and doing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word that although we are tempted, so tempted to take that delicious-looking bait and chomp down on it, Father, we know that if it's not according to your word, then it's not good for us, Father, and it will capture us and drag us down that slippery slope of sin. But praise God, you've given us a victory because all good and perfect gifts come from above and that we, out of all creation, have become your prized possession, Father. And as a prized possession of you, 
Let us avoid the snares that would tempt us to sin. Let us stand strong. Let us fill our hearts and our minds with your word that we might not sin against you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.